Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Torah Shack podcast. You know what I'm about to say and you want to click forward the 30 seconds to stop hearing me saying it, but I'm asking you not to. We rely on you. The Torah Shack has no ads, no sponsors. Only with the support of our listeners can we keep the conversations going. So if you like what we do, if you get something out of it, please, I'm asking you to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. It is at the top of the podcast that you're listening to right now. It isn't a one-way street. You get a ton of additional content as well as all of our podcasts entirely plea-free. But much more importantly, you will be helping keeping this progressive, left-leaning podcast platform going. So whether it's Reboot Republic, Shrapnel, Glow West, Policed, or indeed the brand new Palcast, One World, One Struggle with Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal, they're all in one consolidated feed and you don't have to listen to me beg. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Sam McElwain and as ever I'm joined by Gareth Mulvenna. How are you doing Gareth? Hi Sam, yeah, not too bad. Um, good to be here as always. How are you? You know what, I'm actually quite quite happy with how things are going and, and again I think we've got another guest here who's top calibre and I know it's because of my little sort of um, niche sort of collection of, of, of people but it, yeah, it's, it's another one of those ones that I've been looking forward to. Yeah, absolutely. It's somebody I actually, and I didn't say this before we came on air, but it's somebody I actually looked up to as a as a sort of teenager around the time of the agreement, along yeah. with his colleagues. I thought this was a very sort of fresh political ideology, and it was very very nice to see at the time. So yeah, really thrilled to have him on on the pod. So well, we'll suppose the, the introduction ahead. should be. Um, his name is Davey Adams. He's a former loyalist uh, political activist. He's one of the negotiators of the Good Friday Agreement. He's also a former Irish Times columnist uh, and a former international humanitarian activist. So quite, quite the CV there, Davey. How are you doing? I'm doing well, lads. Good to, good to see you and uh, talk to you. I mean, all the compliments you've got me right away. You know, I'm in your <laughs> pocket, whatever <laughs> Whatever he has wanted, sir, for you, if I can give you it, you know. That's good. The interrogation <laughs> will go smoothly then. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> yeah, we, we tend to go good cop, good cop. Bad cop doesn't work, really. <laughs> Davey, I suppose I'll kick off because, as I said, you're in that group of politicians that I grew up with, maybe not as closely with, as, as I said before we came on, I've only met you once or twice, but you're in that pocket of politicians that came came through in the mid-90s and, and the late-90s around the Good Friday Agreement and, to me, did the hard graft because the, there, was a, there, was a, there was an item there that needed to be sold to a clientele that sometimes didn't want to sell to them and we had to convince a lot of people that that was the case. And again, when we talk about the Good Friday Agreement and we have all these uh, get-togethers, it's always the same faces that are on the stage. It's always the Birdies and it's always the Tonys and the Alistairs and the oh. Jonathan Pauls. Uh, and David Trimble rightly gets a, a mention and Jerry and co. But the likes of yourself and Gary McMichael, um, Billy Hutchison and Davey Irvine tend to get forgotten about a bit. I mean, th- does that does that great slightly? Are you happy with the process that you put in place? I'm happy enough with that. I mean, uh, they had the 25th anniversary this year and I wasn't invited to it, and I looked and I saw, you know, I saw people who were there who 
I mean, I'd never heard tell of, never, never mind knew them. But having said that, as long as Gary was invited, and there was some recognition of what we, of what we had went through, and and what we had helped deliver, then I was happy enough with that. And then I've gone through quite a bit of illness over this past few years since I retired from work, and you know, I I could have done without all of it. And having said that again, and to contradict myself. I wouldn't mind it meeting up again with some of the people from the other parties that we went through the process with. It would have been like an old school reunion, but having said all that, I was happy enough as long as Gary was invited. But you're quite right. I mean, there are people, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I see occasionally an odd person um, heading off to a different part of the world to talk about our peace process and how successful it is and all the rest of it. And I'm saying to myself, but hold on a second, you know, you you oppose this all all the way along, you know, but now you're selling it around the world, you know. Um, and also, I've never actually thought, and this is going a bit further probably than, than you, you meant it to, but I've never actually thought and didn't at the time that the Good Friday Agreement was a terribly complicated affair. It was no work of genius. And by that, I mean, by that, I mean, Anyone who who was was determined um, and eager to have a peaceful political settlement where everyone was pursuing their objectives by purely peaceful and democratic means could see the broad outline of what an agreement had to contain. The hardest part was getting getting it all signed up, um, getting it down on paper rather. Um, selling it to the various constituencies and then selling it to, in our case, the people of Northern Ireland. Um, but no, no, uh, I don't mind being overlooked. I really don't. Um, you know, it's not, not modesty. It's just, just fact. Um, I would much rather that people had. <sighs> I hear people talking now about the Good Friday Agreement has failed us, you know. It hasn't. We have to be honest, we as a society have failed the Good Friday Agreement. Like it was a document, it's it's words on paper. Um, I think of it as sort of a roadmap to where you need it to be. Um, and it's like as if we just ignored the roadmap or sat-nav. Think of it as a sat-nav where we ignored where the sat-nav was telling us to go and we ended up back at the same place and then blamed the sat-nav, you know. Um, and one thing that really gets to me is that there has been no real effort um, put into reconciliation. And that's what is lies at the root of the Good Friday Agreement. At any peace agreement, um, you know, it just was, well, we've got the peace agreement now and uh, we'll get stormed up and running and, and that's it, you know. Disastrous. I mean, there are very honourable individuals and small community groups about the country who are doing all sorts of things on both sides of the tribal divide to try and reconcile a bit. But the main political parties and the major actors have done nothing towards that. There's been the odd box-ticking exercise like, turning up at the GAA game and whatever, and or visiting a school, you know, uh, visiting a state school and speaking to the youngsters as sort of a box tick, you know, or coming out with some phrase somewhere along the line. 
there has been no serious um, effort to really try and reconcile us. And when I look at the situation now, I quite honestly feel that we're more divided but certainly for than we have been for many, many years. And absent the violence, it's almost, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we're more divided than we, than we have ever been. Absent the violence that there was due to troubles. Well, I just want to get the sat-nav that you talk about there and bring you back a wee bit, um, yep. 70 years, if that's okay. Back, <laughs> back, yep. back to the early 1950s. And I want to talk to you about your childhood. And, you know, yeah. for people who don't know what it was like growing up in Northern Ireland, particularly outside Belfast in the pre-Troubles era, can you talk a wee bit about your family background and yeah. how your mum particularly was quite a good, you know, a big influence on you growing up? Well, I've lost count of the number of people over the years who have just assumed that I'm from the Shankill Road. Um, and nothing against the Shankill Road, of course, but it could, couldn't be further from the truth. I'm actually from a small housing estate uh, at Blaris. Um, 38 houses, that's how small it was. Rural housing estate that sat between um, Hillsborough and Lisburn, called Longcash, would you believe? <laughs> Though the name was swiftly changed after uh, after the internment camp was opened. Um, and it, it was a wonderful childhood, you know. Um, and in, in hindsight, it was wonderful, but we were all very poor. Um, there's no other way of putting it. Um, in the estate, um, it was a mixed estate. We actually were the only Protestants in our row, though the, our row consisted only of four houses, but um, it was a mixed estate. Um, and we spent our time just running the fields and getting into mischief and all sorts of things. Um, I should say it to you, I was one of ten youngsters, eight boys and two girls. My mother was a devout Christian, but I always, whenever I say that to anyone, I always had quickly, in a real sense, you know. Um, she was very non-judgmental, um, very good in her nature and in her ways, and very devout. Um, and it always stood me in good stead over the years that because I knew what real Christianity looked like, what it was supposed to be, and you would meet all sorts of charlatans who would claim to be Christians, and they're very far from it, you know. And I, I, I have no real belief at all. I mean, I would have went to church, <clears throat> excuse me, every Sunday until you were about sixteen. Then you could make up your own mind. You went to Sunday school and all the rest of it, but I never bought into it. Um, but um, in fact, and I'm going to throw this in, you know, just pull my back of him wandering all over the place, but I would have been one of those who would have had snide remarks, you know, smart aleck about Christianity and about people who believe in religion and all the rest of it. But having spent many years overseas in countries where if the people didn't have religion, and a devout belief that they were going to have a better life in the next life. Uh, they're going to have it better in the next life as opposed to the, the terrible life that they have to endure. Then they would nothing. They would have nothing to live for. So while I'm 
I'm not religious at all. I, I have respect for religi religion in that sense. But um, just back to my childhood, we <laughs> I, went, I went to a very small school, uh, Blairs Primary School. It was a national school, or it had been. Um, so the local Catholic farmers had went to it as well. Some of them had went with my father at the same time as my father. But when I first started at it, um, it wasn't uncommon to see a rat sneaking across, you know, the classroom as you were being taught. Um, we had these big bulbous type fires at the back for the winter, whenever, you know, they were filled up with coke. And whenever the cinders were taken out, they were spread on the, on the playground. So that's what the playground was, just cinders. And if you fell, you know, Take you a fortnight getting all the grit out of your elbows and your knees and all the rest of it. Um, and, I mean, I passed the qualifying, nowadays called the 11 plus, and in hindsight, I don't think I could have failed to pass it. You know, there were, there were two of us in primary seven, uh, myself and a girl, and we both sailed through it. And as my mother used to say, <laughs> you couldn't pay for private education like that, you know. So there were good times, and I was brought up in a very anti-sectarian, and I mean anti-sectarian as opposed to, you know, non-sectarian, very anti-sectarian household, and I was very well raised. So I never kidded myself or tried to kid anyone else in my life that anything I, any path I took was down to anyone other than myself. You know, there's an old saying about... Um, all my good points um, I owe to my mother and my father and the rest, everything else, is is of my own making, you know. Um, and that's very much, uh, that's very much my, my, my look, my outlook on my life. And I remember well, too, someone's saying in the, in the family, you know, our David has plenty of brains, but he hasn't announced a common sense, you know. So... That wasn't a bad character assessment, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose, following on from that, Davey, people would be surprised to hear that us loyalists aren't sectarian sometimes. We can come from a background that we don't see that divide. So, so you've, you've grew up in a rural setting, which is, again, not what we're used to, because, Gareth, we always end up Belfast Centre, because we're Belfast <laughs> That's our connection. So we're always keen to get the, the sort of rural sort of perspective on this. But you, you've grown up in that sort of setting. How do you move from living somewhere like Eglantown, Long Cash, um, to getting involved with loyalist grassroots politics? How how does that transition happen to start with? I think um, I think it's, it, it needs to be said that growing up in a mixed community and knocking about with with Catholic neighbours and friends and later on, in later years, knocking about with Catholics uh, being part of the group in Lisburn. You're not open to fall for this generalisations about people, the demonisation of whole communities, because you know enough people from that community, you've grown up with them, to know it's a nonsense, that they're no different than us. How I ended up where I did, it has to go back to what I said earlier, partly at least about where one of the family said about me one time that he hasn't announced a common sense. There was that in it. There was also 
there was also the fact that the troubles were going on and on and on. And if you can cast your mind back, you just could see them coming to an end. You knew people who were killed and injured. Um, if you didn't know them, you knew relatives of theirs. Um, and it just plodded on and on and on. And it sort of, I don't know, I always think as well that whatever excuse I or anyone else makes, right, on whatever side, for getting involved, what you have to say is there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young people at the time who had exact same experiences as we did, and far, far worse in many cases, who didn't get involved. So it, what it boils down to is something that you have to take responsibility for. Doesn't matter to any great extent what your background was, what your, you know, I couldn't blame it on my family life. Um, I didn't come from a, a, a split home. I didn't come from a sort of a, a home that was a battleground between my parents and all the rest of it. The very opposite, in fact. So, you have to take absolute, once you pass a certain age, I think you have to take absolute responsibility for your own choices. And as I say, there were hundreds of thousands of people on both sides of the divide who went through far, far worse and didn't get involved. So there are no real excuses when it comes down to it, you know. So when you say there, Davy, it's really interesting because you talk about your family being anti-sectarian. Yeah, you, you grew up in a in a mixed community, and then ultimately you did get involved with the UDA, yeah. and you know we'll not get bogged down and all that. But what did make you gravitate towards that activism and get involved in that and and the loyalist politics? Then, if you came from that very anti-sectarian and sort of mixed background, if if you know what I mean, I think as well. And I'm no psychologist, and we're never very good at being a psychologist where ourselves are concerned. But I was a complete failure in many respects. You know, I did, and this isn't the boast, it's just, look, I did have brains to burn. And I went to a grammar school, and I had all the opportunities of the day, and I threw them away by messing about, and, you know, and I ended up in dead-end jobs and even ended up unemployed. And I felt I felt like a real waster as well because, you know, you could sense things when you're a child. And I, I sensed the expectation of my parents um, and the rest of the family whenever I passed the qualify and went to grammar school and did well for a while, all the rest of it. And there maybe was a bit of a problem with the weight of expectation, but that happens in all families. You know, and I just let everyone down. And there might have been a bit of self-hatred in there as well. But as I say, I'm no psychologist and I don't want to avoid or even try to avoid or try to kid myself in any respect about where responsibility lies. And I should say as well that I didn't say about my mother that, I mean, my mother was... She wasn't terribly well educated. She was educated, but not terribly well. But she was one of the most intelligent people ever I met. 
She read incessantly and read good books. She had me reading, you know, childish books, like, before I even started primary school. And, I mean, by 11, I was reading the likes of Emil Zola, um, Robert Dewey Stevenson, um, people like that, um, D.H. Lawrence even. Um, so, you know, the influence that my mother in particular had on my life was monumental. But being a bit of a waste that <laughs> I was, I didn't take all of the influence that I chewed off from her. And I said one time in a UTV interview, someone, I think it was Paul Clark, was talking to me, and he says, oh, it was when I got awarded a medal for my work on Ebola in Sierra Leone, and I was on to see, and he said something to me at the last, and he says, you must be proud, and I says, well, I'm just happy that, or your children must be proud, and I said, well, um, my thing is not, <laughs> I'm not worried if they're proud or not, I just, I just don't want them to be ashamed of me. And I says, and, and I also feel a wee bit that my parents would be delighted to see that at last I'm starting to turn out to be the person that they thought they were raising, you know? Is that all, is that all too convoluted or does it, does no, it make sense? No, it, it makes sense. But, but I think, as Gary said, we're not going to get both in, down into the, the nuts and bolts of how you ended up where you did, um, as in the, the, the bit before the Good Friday Agreement. But I think you need, you need to sort of, Maybe maybe give yourself a bit of self praise there. That what what was achieved by young working oh, yeah. class lads in that era, coming through and in many respects leading the way of of our so called betters who were time served politicians and who were meant to be given as leadership. They they had to be shown the way and and given 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 a sort of mandate from from the working class. We you didn't get the gravitas that was deserved. Um, and even sometimes the UDP in general don't get hmm. the credit that they deserve. Everybody looks at the PUP and they always look at, at David Irvine first and foremost and, and maybe Gussie and Dan Billy and, and so on. But I think sometimes they overlook exactly what went on the, in the UDP um, and how how you guys did that when the, when the light was being shone on you from so many directions. Because there's still, at that point, there were still killings going on and there was still... Uh, as I would say, military actions taking place and they were still functioning as a, a terrorist organisation, if you want. In the meantime, you and Gary and others were in a public-facing role trying to drag them out of the darkness into the light, but giving people some sort of hope at the same time. Why, by, by behind you, that the place was on fire. You're trying to tell them, we're trying to make this right. I mean, so I, I think I think you do need to take a, a, a small part in the back for that at least because that was a thankless job and it has proved thankless over the years because, again, I do believe, especially the UDP, are well overlooked in what, what they achieved. And we always said about the, the PUP and the Women's Coalition are always overlooked. It's always the small parties that are, but I, I do believe that in the, even in that small pool, the UDP were just totally discounted sometimes despite pulling more than their own weight along. You know, so... I would say if your mum's going to be proud of of some things, she probably was a lot a lot more proud back then than you'll ever probably know because you took a country that was actually falling apart at the time. I mean, after the Shankill bombing and and, and mm. uh, the, the Grey Steel massacre and stuff, we really were on on the brink at that point. We certainly were, Sam. Yeah. And you know, uh, don't get me wrong; I don't beat myself up about anything. Um, 
because, I mean, that's a self-indulgence in itself. But I discovered quite a while back that you have to be honest with yourself, about yourself. Um, And then you can move, you can move on. Um, and that's all I'm trying to. That's all I'm trying to be. You know, I don't want to be making excuses for mistakes I made, but I mean, I'm very proud of having played a part in delivering the Good Friday Agreement. And um, if you just, just, just to interrupt you. Sorry, I want to ask you how you felt just after it was signed. That that sort of honeymoon fantastic. period. That sort of that that euphoric moment. That the climax of it was the signatures and everybody walking out of of the Stormont Hotel and all the rest of it going on. How did it feel for that immediate period straight out? I, I remember it, but I want you to tell from your perspective and I want you to tell people exactly how that felt. Felt fantastic, absolutely, as you you used the word euphoric. And I remember doing I think it was I think it was Good Morning Ulster. I, I, I did I did a a down the line interview and I actually was choking up um as I was doing it and I was saying to myself as I was talking, I was saying to myself, Christ, you're not going to get yourself through this here. Don't let yourself down here, you know. But as well as that, totally exhausted. Could I give you a couple of anecdotes just about about during the, the negotiations, you know? Yeah, please do. Go ahead. Please do. They're interesting. Um, George Mitchell. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think I've ever met anyone that I admired more, both as a person uh, and, and for his skills. I remember when he first arrived, he was obviously jet-lagged and he was sitting, you know, at the head of the table and every so often he'd put his head down a bit in his hands. And I remember Bob McCartney, Bob was very formal, you know. Um, he didn't quite call him your honour, but it was all this, you know, from one lawyer to another. But Bob rhymed off these five questions and, I mean... You know, I got lost after halfway through the first one. He stopped halfway through and he said to he said to Mitchell, um, oh, Senator, would you like would you like to do those three and then I'll ask you the other No, 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 go on. So Bob went on and convoluted legalistic stuff and as soon as he had finished Mitchell just went through them one after the other. And just you know, this was a man sitting there literally not quite literally, but within a few hours beforehand, had just got off a flight from America, you know, and you could see he was jet-lagged, and you could see Bob saying to himself, oh, met my match here, you know. And then Mo Molum, she was absolutely fantastic. I remember I got home one night, and my wife telling me that uh, I'd been out um, at a meeting or something, and I come in, and Joyce and my wife was going upstairs, and she shouts over to my son, uh, if anybody rings, as for your daddy, tell him he's not in, he'll be back later. So Joyce went up the stairs, and she must have been up ten minutes, she said, and she came down, and David was just sitting, the son was just sitting, and was Avery down. And she says, who, who was that? Mo? What? Mo who? Mo Mola. Mo had come on the phone. David told her I wasn't there. And she chatted with him for those 10 minutes about his school, about what football team he supported, how he was getting on. And, I mean, anyone else, including me, it would just be, OK, would you tell your daddy I rang? And hung up. But not her. She was a wonderful human being and whip smart as well. She's she's somebody that really didn't get the credit um, 
Natalie Tony Blair. <laughs> um but really magnificent. Um Mark Durkin, great lad too. Oh biggest brain and great sense of humour and all the rest of it too and, and Red Jampy. But anyway, as I say, if I'd been at the twenty five year celebrations, it would have been in many respects like an old school reunion, you know. But I comforted myself with the thought that, you know the old saying that um Failure is always an orphan, you know, but success is many fathers or whatever it is. <laughs> so, you know, the Good Friday Agreement of the 25-year anniversary was anything to go by as, you know, been a great success. I'd just like to take you back. I mean, I know Sam wanted to talk about the post-agreement um, euphoria there, but I think there's some significant stuff I'd like to address that came before that. Um because we talk about Gusty, we talk about uh, yourself and John or um, Gary McMichael, yeah. and you know Billy, Eddie Kenner, all those sort of people yeah. in progressive loyalism. But the one name that people might not be familiar with is Ray Smallwoods, and you yeah. described him as a mentor. So I'd like yeah. I'd like to give you some you know time to talk about him, and for people who you know maybe you're listening in the south or you know across the UK or elsewhere who've never heard this name, can you talk about him and how important he was in, in loyalism at that time? Ray, Ray was originally from Derry, um, had moved down to Lisburn. He served time as a loyalist prisoner, and when he came out, I got to know him. Um, a very smart, very intelligent guy, very lovely fella. Um, he and Gary were great friends as well. Shortly before the IRS ceasefire, um, they they shot him dead on his doorstep in front of his in front of his child. I forget what age his child was at the time. I think about five or something. Um, Ray had been meeting with Gusty for quite a while. I wasn't I wasn't part of those meetings at all. I was working with Ray, but but I wasn't part of those meetings. And it's true to say. Well, it's just factual that Ray and Gusty first laid the groundwork for for um, the loyalist ceasefires and trying to work a political solution, trying to reach a peace agreement and all the rest of it. Ray was a great lad, very, very smart. Um, and he would work directly, as I say, with Gusty and he worked directly with uh, the UDA and our council in terms of reporting to them and discussing politics with them and that sort of thing. Um, Ray, just if I could throw something in, in case I forget here, because it has often struck me that we used to talk about, so often about, um, about victims, and quite rightly so. But I've been in the midst of discussions where I was saying to myself, you know, they don't even realise or that this guy sitting beside me, Gary McMichael, he was a victim, lost his father, his father was murdered, and his best friend, Gary and, and, and Ray would have been closer even than, than me and Ray had been, and lost his, uh, his best friend as well, and yet he was willing to sit down and discuss with Sinn Féin and all the rest of it with Republicans um, the way forward, the best way forward and if he could do it you know there was some cheek by others 
who weren't victims, let's put it that way, to sitting and, oh, well, we can't meet in all this business, you know. Um, that's just as an aside, but whatever, whenever Gary and I met with, with Gusty, Gusty Spence and Davy Irvine, I mean, we hit it off immediately, absolutely immediately, because these guys were just talking exactly in the way we thought. Their thinking was absolutely in line with ours or ours with theirs, whatever way you want to put it. And those massive friendships um, were formed then, right from the start. And I know it may not be very popular to say it in some quarters, but I, I, I really don't care. I thought extremely highly Augusta Spence. Um, gravitas, intelligence, and his commitment, his commitment to find a way out of of uh, the conflict was second to none. And Big Davy as well, some people used to sort of presume that Gary and I maybe were a bit jealous of Davy and all the rest of it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Davy was articulate. He had charisma. I mean, he was fantastic interview interviewee, all the rest of it. And he was he was saying what we wanted said. Far from being jealous, I mean we we were delighted with Davy and loved him as a person, I mean. Always always a great laugh. I mean, I remember and this is another aside whenever we were in South Africa and met Nelson Mandela and all of that business. And I'm one of those people who never would be lucky enough to be standing beside the star of the show whenever a photograph would be taken. Just happened I was in, in South Africa. <laughs> and all you can see at the back of the photograph is Big Davy's dome, you know, the ball dome. <laughs> and as we walked away, I says to Davy, that was a good photo, wasn't it? He says, you eat bollocks if you don't stand any closer to him. <laughs> you had your hand in his pocket. <laughs> That's the photo Davy wanted, you know. <laughs> but he was a great lad, you know. Great lad. Yeah. Uh yeah, you're talking there about how how these guys done the job they did, and they had proper skin in the game, as I would say. I mean, yeah. they, they were the victims. They were the guys who'd been the long cash or yeah. or criminal jail. They had the T-shirt and everything else they needed to go with it, the likes of Eddie Kinner as well. Yeah. These these were the guys. And, and other guys were sitting that, on the sidelines yeah. slagging them and throwing pelters oh, yeah. and how can you talk to these guys? Yeah. When 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 you you lot were obviously the guys that had been in the cool face, seeing what the horror looked like, and then tried to find a way back from it to give everybody else a guiding path. I mean, I, I always find it sort of hilarious that the people who were outside chanting that night about selling Ulster out and <laughs> God <laughs> forgive them were yeah. soon all in power and 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 sort of the half of the Chuckle Brothers and everything else. You know, yeah. it, it always sort of brings a a, a, a pained humour to me that yeah. that's the case that they rode on the on the coattails of everything that you guys did whilst giving you dogs abuse for doing it in oh, the first yeah. place you know yeah. it, it it was hard to take well I'm going to jump forward a couple of years because this is the bit I can't get my head around and you're going to tell me about it how a loyalist <laughs> negotiator how a political activist how a guy who's not from the Shankle but from Lisburn <laughs> um, ends up working in the Republic of Ireland, you know how how does that transition take you there? Okay, I one day during the negotiations, I had a very friendly with. Now this is going to be a long story, so bear with me. 
uh, Declan de Braden, who was the Northern correspondent of the Irish Times, he used to talk through the wire to the to the to the cores and all the rest of it. And uh, he called me over one day, and I thought he was just you know a usual chat. I was out for a smoke, and he says, "David, would you be interested in doing a column for the Irish Times?" I says, "What?" He says, "Of course I would." You know, I was trying to hide my delight, trying to act cool. You know, he says, "I put your name forward and." Uh, Fanula O'Connor, you know, one from either side of the divide type of thing, and I said, that's brilliant, you know, and I says to myself, there's no way I like it, you know, but it's nice to be recommended. Next thing was, they got in touch now, doing a column then, a regular column for these times. I can't quite remember how I got talk back, but I ended up doing that as well. But anyway, in a column, one of my columns, I tore into the UN for Sebrenica, do you remember that all in the Balkans? Um, and how that stood back and allowed all this business to happen. And the Irish Times weren't supposed to give out your phone number or your contact details, but I saw this letter in the in the Irish Times, and you always looked there too after your column to see if there was any reaction. There was this lovely letter from a John O'Shea goal, and I said, was great. Next thing the phone rang, as I say, a couple of days later, that's who it was on the phone, and we were chatting, and him and I got on great. He was the head of goal. Uh, and somewhere in, he says to me, how would you like to go to Niger? I says, what do you mean? He says, going to Niger, you know, with the famine out there and all the rest of it. So that's that was the start of it. I went to Niger in 2005. Um, and I travelled out with two nuns from the Medical Missionaries of Mary, and I met one, in the Irish nun, Sister Helen, I met her at Dublin Airport. I was saying, oh, Christ, you know, what am I going to talk? She was fantastic. And I'm not going to I'm not gonna divulge anything we talked about, but on the plane, I, she was talking to me, and I said, oh, Christ. So I said to her, my sister Helen, you, you know I'm, I'm a Protestant. Oh, I couldn't care less, David, she said. So now, uh, and then we met Nina, Sister Nina, who was, who was from Boston. But these were two ladies who, I forget the time, I think it's every seven years or every ten years to get a month at home. And this was their month at home, so they volunteered to go to Niger. You know, they were based in Africa, like, um, wonderful women. They looked after me like a child. But as we were flying into Niger, I remember saying to myself, Ooh, hope I'm able to you know, stick this, like. But I found out it's what I wanted to do, work with people, you know. And But it was also the first time I come up face-to-face -face with the death and agony that, that people have in the field. I was I was helping to wear babies one day in a big tent that we had put up and there was just god-awful scream from outside and we all ran out and there was this young woman who had walked for miles um, through the Sahara or, or the Sahel just along the Sahara where Niger is walked f with, for miles with her with her friends and when she got to our site she opened you know her her uh, blouse and the twin chip, twin babies dead that died on the that died on the on the journey you know um, and I mean the screams of the crater would have oh chilled your blood um. Yeah, but um, it was the first of many, many 
Uh, I needn't say experiences because I don't like saying that. Uh, I mean, you're only there, you witness stuff, you don't experience it. You witness what other people are experiencing, you know. But it was the first of many deaths and tragedies and all the rest of it. And on the, on the basis of where you end up working, did your work colleagues know who you were in your background? <laughs> and how was that handled? Because to me, I've had conversations and you're trying to gauge the other person before you start divulging <laughs> any information and how, how well is it going to be received or not received. So how did that pan out? Oh, they knew who I was before I went down. I remember I remember well travelling down the first first day of the office and uh, I was saying, oh, Christ, you know. But they were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. They, they had Googled me and all because I was I had, I had a semi-high profile. Um, there were some were a wee bit standoffish at first. Very understandable. Um, just to see what sort of a guy I was, you know. Um, but within within a short while, it was just Davy, our friend and colleague, you know. Um, now, I have to say, if I'd been an ex-prisoner, or if I'd even been uh, in court for something where there was a tangible thing that people could point at and say, David may not be as nice as he, you know, as we thought. It would probably have been different. And I have to say as well, if, if I'd been a Republican, high-profile Republican, I don't think the welcome would have been a sound either. Because... What I learned over the years, you don't work with people for 15 years and very closely and share tents with them in the back of beyond without getting to know real the reality of people. There was a big resent, very resentful of the fact that people claimed to be doing what they were doing on behalf of the Irish people. That did not go down well at all. But um, no, it was wonderful, wonderful. Um, I had, I had two unsavoury episodes during the whole 15 years I was there. I don't know, you city boys, but country people would tend to, and they're walking down the street, tend to nod at people. How are you? Good morning. Now. And so that's the way I was. And I must have been about six weeks or two months there, and I'd noticed two old guys across the street, different positions each morning, but they were watching me, I knew that, you know. And, and I thought either they're very bad at doing, not watching me or else they want to want, want me to notice them so that I feel a bit intimidated. But anyway, there was this other guy who was on the side of the street that I walked down, and he was younger, and first time I nodded at him, you all right? And he just glared back, and I said to myself, that's dead all, let's speak to you anymore. Anyway, I progressed to where he was sticking his face in mine in the mornings and growling at me and all the rest of it. And a big lump of a guy, like. And I says to myself, now, the problem here is this guy is going to, it's getting, it, it's progressed to the point where your man, the guy no says, you know, your man's going to bait me up and down the street. Or what I was really worried about was that, you know, talk, maybe some, an agent would come and shoot you or something, some dissident or wannabe. But most of all, it was about maybe Gold saying to himself, well, Davy's a great lad, but he's a wee bit too much trouble, you know. Anyway, um, we had a new head of security, and I didn't know him. He was an ex-guarded detective. 
I'd met him, but I didn't know him. But anyway, I asked to speak to him in private. Oh, I come on out, he says. So I explained the situation to him. Oh, he says. So he put a stop to that. So the next morning he phoned me down. He says he, he fancy a coffee up the street with a couple of guards from Dunleary. I says, oh, huh? So I went up, half an hour's chat with them. Don't you worry about that. I'll was sorted. She is the next morning. The two lads fought across the street. The guy who had ended up putting his face in mine and getting on, he looked all sheepish and looked away when he seen me coming. So <laughs> that was sorted, you know. Um, and another episode that I'll not go into here, but um, because I just don't want to cast aspersions on people in gold because I was 100% unrepresentative of the beating of gold, you know. Well, I mean, I just want to talk a wee bit. I know we're, we're talking about goal and, you know, your sort of career after your pl- political career. But I think it's important to give a wee bit of context as to why you moved away from loyalist politics. Now, from the outside looking in at the time and, you know, someone who, who was studying that period quite closely as it, as yeah. it happened, um, one of the things I would have looked at when I was at Queen's was what was called spoilers in peace processes uh, groups who want to ruin the a peace process from within their own group and for me yeah. that was happening in real time with with the udp because there was yourself and gary working day and night to try and bring that constituency along and on the other hand you had johnny adair john white people like that bringing loyalism into the gutter so it seemed to me that no matter what you guys did you were taken to the pitch in a really bad wicket. So what was it like? And to me, the sense I get, and I've not talked to you before, so I'd like to get your thoughts on it, but it seems to me you got a seconder eventually to, to use the local parlance. Would that be correct? Yeah, more than correct. <laughs> um, to be honest, to be perfectly honest, once the Good Friday Agreement was signed and, and endorsed by the people and heavily endorsed by the people north and south, for me, that was it over. I mean. I just was no excuse for conflict after that, and I still believe that. Um, and I walked away. I, it was a messy divorce, very messy. Um, and that's all I want to say on that. But, I mean that that was it. I mean, I, the Good Friday. Either you believed in the Good Friday Agreement and wholly believed in it, or you didn't. And I did. Um, and still do. Um. But that was it. I mean, I walked away. Job done. Um, I just didn't want to be part of that anymore. I mean, other people had different ideas. I was up to them. I mean, I'm not lecturing anybody on what they should do, but I knew what I had to do for me and my family. So if if you look at the way things are now, Davy, and we'll have these talks of, you know, moving towards a border pole, a new Ireland, all these sorts of things, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I know in an interview you did with John Manley for the Irish News, I think you might have said that you don't regard yourself as a loyalist anymore, but as a unionist, and you were flexible about the idea of a border poll and how you might vote in it. Can you talk a wee bit around that and how, how your thinking's developed over the years? Um, I was going to say it certainly didn't develop just because I spent a lot of time in, in Dunleary. <laughs> but it probably did. Um, 
my problem isn't, I have no problem with the border poll, absolutely don't. I mean, it was part and parcel of the Good Friday Agreement. We agreed that it would be a 50 plus one. All of us agreed that because anything else would be undemocratic. Now, that's based on the democratic logic that um, a Republican uh, objective is every bit as legitimate as a unionist objective, as long as it's sold in, uh, as long as it's pursued by peaceful and democratic means. Now, that's simple democracy. You can't then say, but all of that's great, but you'll never have a chance to achieve it. So that's where the border poll comes in. Now, my problem is this. <clears throat> I have no objection at all to a border poll. What I have strong objections to are how people are pursuing, some people are pursuing it at the moment, and that seems to be based on just entirely, just constantly attacking unionists, and they don't say political unionists or political unionism or a section of political unionism, just unionists, denigrating unionists constantly. And I mean, for anything to work, whether it be for us to remain within the UK, we have to reconcile. And if we move into United Ireland, we're just moving the problem onto a bigger plane, onto a bigger stage. Reconciliation has to be the thing. Um, and no one's making an effort at that, aside from, as I said, some very good individuals and small community groups and all the rest of it, but our major parties are playing on division. And do they think that within the United Ireland, for example, that, you know, we're just going to reconcile by some magic? What we run the risk of doing is polluting um, the social and political fabric of the Republic or what would be the New Ireland. I mean, to me, to me it makes no sense at all not to try and reconcile people. Now, that's not to say it's possible. You know, it might, it may not be possible to bring reconciliation here. But there's no excuse for not trying and for not properly trying in a concerted way. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I consider myself Irish, very much Irish. Always have, like, I mean... <sighs> You know, if, you ask, if you'd asked my poor old dad, are you Irish? He looked at you as if you weren't wise and said, why, that sound Australian or something? I mean, to say you're not Irish, it's a contradiction in terms. You're born in the island of Ireland. But it's more than that. You're also saying I'm an outsider here. I don't belong here. So, I mean, I've no problem with any of that. I mean, goodness. How I would vote in a border poll, and I've said in, in an article that I did recently, I'd vote for whatever I think promises the best future for my grandchildren. And absolutely, 100% that, I really will. Now, at the moment, I see it as, without reconciliation, or 
it's not even as if people aren't trying to racket, bring about reconciliation. It's as if they're trying to excite division. You know, it's not even a neutral position they've adopted. But without reconciliation, I don't think it matters what stage we're on, what constitutional setup there is. This place is still going to be a nightmare. It really is. And we're just passing this down generation after generation after generation like a poison chalice. And that is the big thing about the Good Friday Agreement that people just ignored um, and ploughed on with. In fact, you know, truth be known, how many years I forget now, but it wasn't too many years after the Good Friday Agreement was endorsed that each of our tribes voted for the extremes. You know, can you imagine if the SDLP and the Ulster Unions had remained as strong as they were at that time and had got a sustained period of time in office? I would bet my life that things would be an awful lot better than they are now. Yeah, I think I think you're right there, Davy. I think um, we, we took the moderation out of this place. Um, and we replaced it with um, the, the the most extreme views on both sides. We we allowed them a public stage to do so. Um, we asked our bets. Yeah, I mean for, Gareth for, will tell you that yeah. he's went on a journey from where he is on the constitutional question, and he sort of he's he's at the same line. What's best for his child, no matter what, what is yeah. best yeah. for for that child? Um, I'm I'm of the opinion that we are better off in the UK. But I am also of the opinion that the UK government need to do more to make that an argument that I can have, that I can that I can stand and debate with somebody why it's better. Because at the minute they're giving me no ammunition to do so, you know. So and I, I, so I don't. So I don't think, not helping their cause any. No, concern, and that's, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, we're debating where we want to go, but neither sort of pitch looks um, nice and flat and even for me. I mean, they're they're both as bad as each other on so on some issues, and I find sometimes that the Irish government are trying to out Tory the Tories. Uh, yeah. On certain things that go on in the south, but again, we're we're standing up here fighting over where we're going to end up. First of all, we have to we have to ask the the, the people of the twenty six counties: Do they want this? Yeah. That's that'll be a, a question that we're not sort of getting on to at the minute. And there's plenty down there who probably will, but there's a cost to us, both I mean, financially and the impact that we're going to have on the fabric of their society. I exactly, and personally, I couldn't have been treated any better. It was absolutely remarkable how well I was treated um, when I worked in the Republic, given my background. But I was, if you like, a novelty act. I was a bit of a novelty. It's, it's a whole world of difference if the entire circus lands up on your front lawn, you know. And, and maybe um, also point to how Paddy Keelty's been seen at the minute and a few other northern voices that are being sort of exported to the south. They're not always welcomed with open arms, or they're not always given fair criticism. Sometimes they're yeah. a bit harsh on us. Yeah. Um, Southerners in general, at least when I was there, and as I say, when you're when you've lived with people for years and years, you know, they're open and everything. You know, I mean, it's not that they didn't think people up here were Irish. They thought. We are Irish, okay, but an Irish that a type of Irishness that would have fitted better into nineteen thirty two or nineteen fifty two or whatever, you know. 
nothing to do with modern Irishness. Now, a problem I have as well is that all of the stuff that's gone on in terms of denigrating uh, unionists and almost blaming us for everything, you know, we, we range from, you know, just stupidity, don't have any interest in uh, education, all of the nonsense of the day. But that is also being propagated in the South by some very ed well-educated and well-positioned people, and that's a problem as well. I mean, I just keep coming back to it. I really do keep coming back to it, that we need important people, positioned people in this place, need to be working day and night together on reconciliation and let it take us, take us wherever it takes us, you know. I mean, Gareth and I are very much then of the of the same opinion. It's what it's what sort of a society you're building for your children and in my case grandchildren. That's really all that should matter. I mean, what we have here are people politicians and others who excite division and feed off it. They feed division and feed off it. I mean I could go on all day, but, you know, we live in these little bubbles where people don't meet someone from the other tribe or knowingly meet them until they're, you know, maybe in their teens or whatever, and their views have been formed and all the rest of it, you know, and we have the education system where, you know, integrated education should brought in no matter who it suits and who it doesn't. Um, it's a disgrace that, I forget what the percentage is, but I think it's about 71 schools out of well over a thousand in Northern Ireland that are integrated, you know, disgraceful. Would not even make an effort, you know. Well, I think we'll, we'll title what the, you're alluding to what the Republicans did in there is making friends and influencing people the wrong way. Uh, about attacking the Indian community, I think if they want, if they want a smooth transition as such, and they they want to encourage votes to go their way, they're going to have to maybe change tact and how they're approaching approaching our community as such. Um, Davy, we've taken up a good bit of your time there, and I have to say, I got everything that I thought I was going to get, and a bit more. That that was brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely, thank you so much, Davy. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks, Sam. As long as you're happy. Uh, well, more, we're, more than we're, happy yeah we're happier than we were before we're good <laughs> thanks yeah, thank you speak thanks. again bye bye